Let's go to prayer once again. Lord, we delight in your testimonies. They are our counselors. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you, Lord, that we have your word in our language, that you have so intervened and supervised through history that the Bible is still available, and not only available, but available in many different tongues. We thank you, Lord, for your preservation of your living and active word. And now, Lord, it is not your desire that we uh, stay at arm's length from you. You desire intimate communion with us, uh, to dwell with us and counsel us and lead us along the path of righteousness. So we pray, Lord, would you draw near now as we open again your word, Jesus' words, uh, the tail end of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Uh, Bless us, help us. Uh, May your power be in evidence today, Lord, as we travel through this next section of the Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by saying that we are richly blessed in this church to have uh, gifted men among us who can preach the word when requested to do so by the pastor. Um, I want to personally thank Jonathan for taking us through Uh, Matthew 5, 9 last Sunday, and blessing us with what I thought uh, was a wise and careful exposition of that verse. If you missed Jonathan's sermon last Sunday, you're encouraged to simply go to the church website later this week and have a listen. The sermon audio is now posted there. This morning, we are listening to Jesus speak to us in verses 10 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5, but before we come to the words that Jesus speaks to us in those verses, I want to have us listen first to some of the experiences of our Lord Jesus Christ as those experiences are recorded for us by the writers of the four Gospels. What were some of the experiences of our Lord Jesus Christ during the years of his fleshly ministry on this earth. Well, for starters, as Jesus ministered and carried out his Father's will, he encountered a significant amount of verbal animosity. Jesus was accused of being a blasphemer against God on more than one occasion, Matthew 9.3 and Matthew 26.65. And Jesus was accused of breaking the law of God on another occasion. See the first 14 verses of Matthew 12 later on today. The Pharisees also tried on another occasion to defame Jesus, pointing out that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. What sort of rabbi could he be if he ate with those types. Jesus experienced loads of verbal abuse as he ministered his father's will. There were another couple of times during his ministry when the Pharisees made the brazen claim that the power that was at work in Jesus was really the devil's power. Matthew 9.34, and again in Matthew 12.24. Jesus was also laughed at, Matthew 9.24, and he was labeled on another occasion as a glutton and a drunkard, Matthew 11.19. And as Jesus ministered and carried out the will of his Father on this earth, there were also attempts on his life weren't there. On one occasion, after preaching in Nazareth, they tried to run him off a cliff, Luke 4.29. That's the effect that good preaching can have, I guess. At another time, they were preparing to stone Jesus to death, John 10.31, for what they perceived in him as blasphemy. 
Along the way, Jesus also had to avoid going to certain areas because he was aware that people in those areas were trying to kill him. John 7.1. And of course, we know, finally, for all his efforts to obey and glorify his Father on this earth, the people of the earth ended up hanging him on a cross and spitting at him, mocking him, deriding him, and letting him die there. Matthew 27. Friends, here was a person who had such a staggering effect on people that they wanted him dead. Yes? The holiness and the righteousness and the truth that oozed from every pore of the Lord Jesus Christ inspired people to hate him so violently that they eventually conspired to snuff him out. We much prefer, as fallen human beings, to stay in love with darkness rather than loving the light who has come into the world. And so he was crucified. Now, believing brothers and sisters, may we never, ever, ever forget that we serve, as Christians, we serve not just a Messiah, but a crucified Messiah. As believers, we are people of the crucified Messiah Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed. If we are Christians, we are in union with this Jesus who suffered, who was mocked, and who died. And this Jesus sets the pattern for us. Are you with me this morning? I want you to attend the ears of your heart to his voice in John 15. In John 15, beginning at verse 18, Jesus says to you, believer, and also says to me, he says this. And I want you to listen to him very carefully. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Yes? Again, Jesus was verbally abused. Jesus was accused. Jesus, they wanted him liquidated if they could. People finally did hang him up on a cross. You and I as believers, we are in union with this Jesus. We can expect as born-again believers similar treatment from the world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, believer, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then listen to Jesus in verse 20. He says to us, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I want to ask you this morning, believer, do you know what you signed up for? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus Christ as his disciple. Persecution is the theme of this sermon this morning. And it's our theme because it's the theme that's found in the final section of the Beatitudes, verses 10 through 12 of Matthew 5. We just finished listening to the Lord who himself experienced persecution for his 
righteousness and for his holiness. We just heard him promise us who are believers that we also will experience persecution for our faithful stand for God. Servants are not above their master. And in the final section now of the Beatitudes, he says this to us. He says, Makarios, flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Makarios, flourishing are you when others revile you. And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, it's no accident that these particular verses on persecution come right here at the tail end of the entire section of the Beatitudes. Notice very carefully their position as the Beatitudes close. I think that by putting them here at the close of the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying, in effect, if you're the kind of person who, A, recognizes your poverty of spirit, first beatitude, and B, mourns over your sin, second beatitude, and if you're the kind of person who practices meekness, third beatitude, and hungers for righteousness, the righteousness of God, fourth beatitude, and if you're the kind of person who is merciful, fifth beatitude, who has a purity of heart about you that God is orchestrating, sixth beatitude, and if you're the kind of person who is an active peacemaker, seventh beatitude, then, final, eighth beatitude, you are a person who can expect persecution. It's like all the godly characteristics described in the first seven Beatitudes flow right into this note of persecution in the eighth Beatitude. Now, as was stressed in last week's sermon and in sermons previous to this week, to last week, we have to see these Beatitudes as a package deal. Amen? All of them taken together describe the person who is flourishing. The Beatitudes are not like a buffet where we can put Matthew 5.6 and Matthew 5.7 on our plate but leave uh, Matthew 5.10 and Matthew 5.4 under the heat lamp. We're not at liberty to pick and choose here which of these we like and which of these we don't care to take very seriously. It's more like when mom comes along and mom says to us, You'll eat everything that I put on your plate. Did you ever have your mom say that to you? Jesus comes along and gives us all these beatitudes on our plate. And the idea is that they're a package deal. All of them have to be taken together. All of them apply to the disciple who is truly flourishing, including this rather unsavory section that we don't like at the very end on persecution. Now, I must confess that as a guy who grew up in the cozy, plush environs of 20th and 21st century North America, I really don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to the persecution that Jesus speaks of here. I really don't. So from the outset this morning, I want to say that I feel rather unqualified to speak on this subject. I realize that I've had it pretty good as a believer living in this part of the world. I've never experienced harsh or extreme persecution for my faith like so many of our brothers and sisters worldwide are experiencing right now. 
But I suppose, friends, it's worth pointing out here that there is a spectrum of extremity when we talk about the persecution of Christian believers. There is a spectrum of extremity. Persecution can certainly be very violent in nature, like being tortured and or imprisoned for one's faith or even murdered. But persecution can also take forms that are perhaps a little lower on the scale of extremity, like losing your job because of your faith convictions or being laughed at, whispered about when you enter a room or suffering repeated verbal abuse as you take a stand for Jesus Christ. There there is this spectrum of extremity when we talk about Christians being persecuted. Now let's talk a little bit about the word persecute or persecuted, which notice appears three times in our preaching text, three times in Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12. The word in the Greek text that stands behind our English Bible is the word dioko, dioko which translates into English as persecute. The basic meaning of this verb is to run after, to pursue, to persecute. To run after, to pursue, to persecute. The New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, says that in the New Testament, this word is mostly used of inflicting suffering on people who hold beliefs that the establishment frowns on. One more time, deoko, inflicting suffering on people who hold beliefs that the, that the establishment frowns on. Now, I want you to set your eyes on Matthew 5.10 with me. It's up on the screen, but if you have your Bible, you can look there. What we need to note very well here in verse 10 is that it's a very specific category of persecution that Jesus is talking about here. It's a very definitive or exclusive kind of persecution that he connects here with human flourishing. So let's talk about some flavors of persecution or some kinds of persecution that Jesus is not talking about here. So we can get the contrast. Jesus is not talking here about being persecuted because you're obnoxious. Being persecuted because you, are, you have a disagreeable attitude about you and now you're in trouble with others. That's not the kind of persecution that Jesus is talking about here, nor is Jesus talking about the person who says, oh, I've been persecuted after they lose their job due to their own folly or due to their own laziness or due to their own offensive attitude. What Jesus says here, notice, very specifically, is flourishing are those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. Notice how he laser beams... The focus here. He's not talking about being persecuted in general for whatever. He's talking specifically about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, what does he mean by this phrase, persecuted for righteousness' sake? Well, in a nutshell, what Jesus is talking about here is the person who suffers hostility from others, who suffers persecution, because that person is demonstrating that his or her whole life, their whole life is oriented toward God and God's will. The person who is persecuted for righteousness sake is the person who suffers hostility because of their demonstrated Christ-like character and conduct. Scott McKnight helps us here in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. 
he says this. The persecuted, whom Jesus is talking about here, are those who seek God's will in spite of what others want, who love God so much they are faithful to God when oppressed, and who follow Jesus so unreservedly that they suffer for him. Flourishing are these specific kinds of people, says Jesus. And why? Why are they flourishing? They're flourishing because, he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why they flourish. Now, I want you to notice something here. Notice that the first beatitude that we had back in verse 3 ended with the exact same phrase that this eighth beatitude ends with, namely, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First beatitude, eighth beatitude, they end in the same manner. They sort of act like bookends then to the entire set of beatitudes, and it indicates to us, once again, that all of these beatitudes are to be taken as a whole for the Christian disciple. They are a set that must be taken as a whole. They are not a buffet where we can pick the ones we like and leave the other ones under the heat lamp. All must apply to the life of the true Christian disciple. Jesus says that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are flourishing because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is... Theirs is the kingly rule of God, which we said in the Sermon on the First Beatitude is both now, it is a now kingly rule, and it is a not yet kingly rule. This is the kingdom of heaven. It is God's kingly, benevolent good rule which the believer experiences and basks in now but it's a kingly rule that the believer does not yet experience in full measure it is already and it is not yet flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now when we come to verses 11 and 12 What we pay attention to here right off the bat in these verses is that there's a shift suddenly from Jesus using third-person language, as he has throughout the Beatitudes, now to using second-person language. In other words, Jesus goes, notice, he goes suddenly from talking about they and those and them to talking to you. Notice that. It's almost as if, after he gets done speaking the words of verses 3 to 10 to the crowds with the disciples, he now turns his attention specifically to his disciples. And he says, you. He says in verse 11, Makarios, flourishing are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And it's like he's expanding a little bit now in verse 11 on what he has just said in verse 10. I want you to notice something else in verse 11 that is also very important. Notice the last three words of this verse. What are the last three words? On my account. Blessed are you when you're persecuted on my account. Notice that very carefully. Now notice, nowhere else in these Beatitudes so far, nowhere else has Jesus referred specifically to himself. But now he does. As Kenneth Bailey has put it, suddenly, here Jesus walks on the stage on My account. Jesus draws himself into the mix now. Bailey says, it's here in verse 11 where loyalty to the person of Jesus is openly introduced. On my account. Flourishing are you, disciple, 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, this is stunning, friends. The fact that Jesus refers to himself as the reason for a disciple being persecuted is highly significant. You see, any other rabbi in the time of Jesus would point away from himself and would talk instead about people being persecuted on God's account or being persecuted because of the name of God or being persecuted because they were sticking to Torah or something like that. But Rabbi Jesus now dares to draw himself in, doesn't he, as the reason for persecution, persecuted on my account. This is a radical thing here. This is a surprising thing for a a rabbi in the first century to come out and say. Now, I agree with Don Carson here, who argues that this phrase in verse 11, on my account, is basically parallel with the phrase that we had in verse 10, for righteousness' sake. In verse 10, Jesus said that the flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And now in verse 11, he says, flourishing are those who are reviled, persecuted, slandered on my account. The two are parallel. To be persecuted for righteousness' sake and to be persecuted on Jesus' account are essentially one and the same. Now, perhaps if we wanted to, if we wanted to, we could make a slight distinction between the two. We could say, as Daniel Doriani has said in his commentary, that in verse 10, the phrase for righteousness sake has to do with kingdom values. Being persecuted because of holding to kingdom values. And in verse 11, the phrase on my account has to do with the king being persecuted for our association with the king. But at the end of the day, again, I think the two are basically parallel. Whether persecution comes to us because we refuse to abandon kingdom values or whether it comes to us because we are insisting on a firm allegiance to the king or whether it comes to us for both reasons, What we need to see here, friends, and look at the verse with me carefully, what we need to see in verse 11 is that Jesus does not say if others revile you and persecute you. He says when others revile you and persecute you on my account. When. It's not if. It's when for the true born-again, regenerated believer, follower of Jesus Christ. Persecution will happen on some level of the spectrum if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. I wish I could tell you that things were different, but according to 2 Timothy 3.12 also, For the believer, it's not a matter of if you're persecuted for your faith, it's when. That verse tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what's the next word, will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. So I want you to ask yourself and search yourself right now. Because there will be a variety of people in this congregation even. I want you to ask this question of yourself. Do I desire, desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Desire is a word that is colored with emotion. Do I desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Some don't. But if your answer to that question in your heart of hearts is, yes, I do. Then, friend, persecution for you is going to be when, not if. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Has it come to you yet, the persecution? 
And guess what? Do you, do you really want to see something topsy-turvy in the scriptures? You ready for this? <clears throat> this goes so against a lot of popular teaching. But I'm getting it right out of, right out of the scriptures. Persecution and suffering on Christ's account, I want you to listen, is a royal grant to you. It is a royal grant. Persecution and suffering is a royal grant. Where am I getting it? I'm getting it straight out of Philippians 1.29. And I want you to listen very carefully to what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, for it has been, what? Granted to you. Note the word granted. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. It's a royal grant to suffer for his sake. Suffering for the sake of Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, is a royal grant. Don Carson puts it like this. He says, suffering for his sake is a privilege. It is a grace granted. Listen, friends, when you and I take a stand for king and kingdom, and people revile us, that is, when they verbally disparage us and mock us and insult us, when we are bold for Jesus Christ and conducting ourselves in his righteousness and seeking to please him, and someone persecutes us and utters all manner of evil against us falsely because of our stand for Christ, when they slander us and falsely accuse us on account of the Christ that is in us, then we say to ourselves in that moment, this is a royal grant. And verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Now time out here. We are all very human, are we not? Let's just do a quick survey again of what Jesus has talked about in verse 11. He's talked about the untoward experience, the horrible experience of being reviled, of being verbally defamed. Scorned for our faith in Jesus. He's talked about people persecuting you, either physically or verbally. He's talked about people who utter evil about you because of your stand for him. Hurtful evil. Evil, he uses that word. And he's talked about having false stuff slanderous stuff spoken about you. Now, we're all frail human beings, and this stuff that Jesus talks about in verse 11 is some of the most hurtful, damaging stuff that we can possibly imagine to have happened to us. Much of it would simply make us angry and or very sad, and we would feel very, very broken. So just how is it exactly that Jesus can dare to say, as we move to verse 12, this outlandish thing that he says here? Rejoice and be glad when you experience this dark and hurtful stuff. There seems to be a real disconnect, doesn't there, between experiencing the persecution that Jesus details in verse 11 with the rejoicing and being overjoyed that he commands in verse 12. It would have made more sense to many of us if Jesus would have said, retaliate, right, (laughs) if you experience such awful treatment. Or if he would have said, take time, go away, and cool off your anger and lick your wounds if you experience persecution. But Jesus says this strange, topsy-turvy thing. Rejoice and be glad when you experience 
persecution. Well, the first thing I want to say about this, friends, is that the experience of being in emotional and physical pain from being persecuted, I want you to listen, the experience of being in emotional and physical pain from being persecuted can, in fact, can, in fact, coexist with rejoicing and being glad in the same moment of persecution. I'm going to say that again because I think it's tremendously important. The experience of being in emotional and physical pain from being persecuted can, in fact, coexist with rejoicing and being glad in the moment of the same persecution. And here I'm helped a great deal by John Piper. Piper notes that each of us is made in the image of God. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're made in the image of God. All of us are made in the image of God. Think of this. The God in whose image we are made is obviously capable of experiencing two different emotions simultaneously at the very same time. Joy and sadness. Think of it. Right now, as I speak, right now, at this very moment, somewhere in the world, there is a person who has just repented and come to faith in Jesus Christ. God is responding with joy. But in the very same moment, on another part of the globe, another person is violently rejecting the gospel, and God is responding with sorrow. Both in the very same moment, so that God at any given time can be experiencing at least Two different, very different emotions, joy and sadness at the same time. And friends, we are made in his image. Consider Acts 5.41, just very briefly. So the apostles here, the apostles of the early church, were being persecuted for preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 5.40 tells us that the apostles were beaten for preaching in the name of Jesus, which in the context of the first century meant that the apostles were given 39 lashes. Sometimes this 39-lash flogging resulted in death. So severe was the process. After they were beaten, Acts 5.41 says this, that they left the presence of the Sanhedrin, who had just administered the beating. They left that day, think of it, they left that day with flesh hanging in strips off of their backs, blood flowing down with burning lacerations. Every time they moved their garments, a fresh sting of pain would result. These guys were no doubt in that moment experiencing shock, weren't they? And anger over the injustice of what had just happened to them. And they were no doubt feeling very sad and very sorrowful about the fact that fellow human beings could be so evil as to harm them in such a violent way. And yet, Acts 5.41 tells us they left rejoicing for they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus name rejoicing it doesn't mean that the apostles felt no sadness It doesn't mean that they felt no physical pain or anger at the injustice that they had just endured. It doesn't mean that they were experiencing zero trauma 
over having just been flogged. The rejoicing we need to understand, the rejoicing was co-mingling, co-existing with their pain and their sadness and their anger so that when Jesus describes to us in Matthew 5.11 the horror the horror of being persecuted and then follows that up in verse 12 with rejoice and be glad. We should not take it in the sense that joy and rejoicing are altogether incompatible with anger and sadness over being persecuted. They are not incompatible. We are complex enough made in the image of God to experience both emotions, both realities at the very same time. Let's deepen into the question, though, why? Why rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted? Why rejoice and have joy when you lose your job over your Christian confession? Why be glad and overjoyed when your back is bleeding? For righteousness' sake. Well, verse 12 gives us the answers to the why question. Jesus, listen to what he says. Rejoice and be glad. And then what's the word? For or because your reward is great in heaven, first of all. Now, we have to be very careful. We have to tread very carefully here. I want you to listen carefully. The idea here in verse 12 is not a sort of piety pays idea. Okay? So in other words, Jesus is not saying here the piety that you demonstrate that results in your being persecuted is what I will reward. It's not a merit thing here where we build up persecution credits and thereby get a greater reward. Rather, the reward that Jesus is talking about here is earned by his merit. He links reward here with heaven, doesn't he? And none of us can earn heaven. Jesus earns heaven and eternal life for us by his shed blood and his broken body on the cross. So the idea in verse 12 is this, that you should rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted for Jesus' sake. Why? Because there is simply no comparison between your present suffering in persecution and the heaven that awaits you that has been earned by Jesus Christ. The idea here is akin to Romans 8.18, one of my favorite verses. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or 2 Corinthians 4.17, the light momentary affliction. And in Paul's case, he had been flogged, shipwrecked, and all the rest of it. The light momentary affliction, this persecution, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Rejoice and be glad, says our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are reviled and slandered and persecuted on my account, for your reward is great in heaven. And then he says at the end of verse 12, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets of ancient Israel had an unenviable job in many respects. The prophets were tasked with calling a rebellious Israel back to God. And that meant that often the prophets had to be confrontational. And they had to offer rebukes to Israel. We see evidence in the Old Testament of the fact that Israel often had a real distaste, didn't they, for the message that the prophets were bringing to them. In Isaiah 30, verse 10, the people of Israel are described there. Listen to this. They say to the prophets, this is the people of Israel saying to the prophets of Israel, don't prophesy to us what is right. Instead, speak to us smooth things. 
prophesy illusions. And then they say, leave the way, prophet. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. The people of Israel often had a real distaste for the message of the prophets. And for their faithful ministry, what happened to the prophets? They were persecuted. As just one example, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was denounced. He was sentenced to death. He was beaten. He was thrown into a dungeon. And then he was thrown into a muddy cistern. And people like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos didn't fare a whole lot better at the hands of the people who despised what they were preaching, despised their message. Jesus in our text, in Matthew 5.12, is talking to his disciples. He's talking to us. And he says, Rejoice and be glad if you are persecuted on my account because what the persecution for righteousness indicates is that you are standing in the good company of faithful men. You are standing shoulder to shoulder with the prophets of God. As Kenneth Bailey has put it, the prophets were faithful and were persecuted. When Jesus' followers are faithful and oppressed for their faithfulness, they can rejoice that they have joined the company of the classical prophets and live in the confidence of a great reward. Friends, there's a sense in which being persecuted for righteousness' sake, being persecuted on account of Jesus Christ shows us when it happens to us, it demonstrates to us, it assures us about who we are. We are Christ's. We belong to Him, and hence we should rejoice and be glad. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones once preached it this way. He said, The persecution that the Christian receives for Christ's sake is proof to the Christian of who he or she is and what he he or she is. The persecution means that we have become identified with Christ, the crucified Christ. If we are thus being maligned falsely and persecuted for his sake, it must mean that our lives have become like his. So rejoice and be glad. I particularly love the vivid way, listen to this, the vivid way that the Puritan William Bridge once put it. I love his imagery here. He said this, Do you not know that the world hates Christ's followers? So long as the pot stands empty and there is no honey in it, the bees and stinging wasps do not gather about it. But if once there be honey in it, then they flock about it. And so long as you were empty of what is good and walked on with an empty heart, no opposition was made unto you. But now these stinging bees and wasps flock about you. What does this argue but that you have got some honey Somewhat that savors of good and of Christ which you had not before. Why should you not therefore praise God for what you have than be discouraged under your opposition? Rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted for Jesus' sake. It indicates that you are living in union with him, with the one who was persecuted and who died on the cross, the crucified Messiah Jesus. Well, friends, our time is up this morning. We've now come through all the Beatitudes that kick off the Sermon on the Mount. And what has God said to us in these verses? The topsy-turvy God who exalts the humble and humbles the proud. The upside-down God who calls first-last And last first, he says to us here in these first 12 verses, what has he said? That the flourishing human being is not what we have thought. The flourishing person is the one who bows before God 
admitting spiritual poverty and mourning over sin and longing for greater purity of heart. The flourishing person is the one who is meek and who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. The flourishing human is the one who shows mercy to others and who actively works toward peacemaking, even when the peacemaking results in being slandered and abused and opposed. This is the person who flourishes in my world, says God. This is the person whom I approve. This is the person who will be living in self-fulfillment. If you have sensed Jesus speaking to you, If you have sensed him flipping your world over, flipping your expectations upside down and arresting your attention, either in today's beatitude or in any of the others over previous weeks, and you want to come and talk to somebody about how you're feeling, I want to encourage you to come and speak with me or with one of our leaders after the service today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, had these verses not been part of the Sermon on the Mount, which we are working through systematically, I frankly would have avoided them. This is not a subject, persecution, that we like to talk about or think about or consider for our own lives. But Lord, it could very well be that you have called some of us to more persecution than we are even receiving right now. I pray that the Holy Spirit would use this word as a great encouragement, that these verses and others like them in the New Testament would come to mind and heart if, Lord, one of us is to experience a persecution that we don't see coming. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to give us uh, a heads up on this and to give us your loving counsel. And I pray, Lord, that the Spirit would walk with us richly for the rest of this day and this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved of the Lord, may you rest secure in him. May he shield you all day long. May you rest between his shoulders that you might be steadfast, immovable, and knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.